0: Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 43 through 51. John 1, 43 through 51. We're in the middle of a series on the hope that is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, a series that follows the general outline laid out by Tim Keller in his newest book, Hope in Times of Fear. Uh, Last Sunday, in Mark's summary of Jesus' early teaching ministry, we saw how Jesus defined the substance of our salvation in terms of the kingdom of God. A kingdom that is already, but not yet fully present here and now. This morning we'll further explore this idea by looking at the promise of the kingdom from a different angle. Keller says the resurrection not only brings the future kingdom into the present, but also brings heaven to earth. It reunites people with the glory of God. As we come to listen to God's word, let's pray for God's help to understand what he says to us. Would you pray with me? Oh God, source of all light, By your word, you give light to our souls. Pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Kids, y'all come on up. All right, guys. So Jesus... Just told Nathanael that being with Jesus meant that Nathanael would see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that's an interesting image, right? Angels going up and coming down using a person like a ladder. Yeah, using Jesus, the Son of Man, like a set of stairs. Do you wonder what Jesus is talking about there? It's kind of a strange image, isn't it? Well, Jesus seems to be talking about something from much, much earlier in the story of the Scriptures. Uh, Much earlier in the Bible, way back in the book of Genesis. Some people had built something called the Tower of Babel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you keep coming to these things. And, and they thought of this tower sort of like a stairway to heaven. Now, now maybe you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we said that every human-made religion says you have to do something to get up to God, right? You remember, you remember that? Well, that's what those people were doing. They thought that they could build a ladder, kind of like a giant stairway, up to heaven. But do you think that it worked? No, you're right. It did not. Building their own ladder was not going to get them up to God. I mean, look, even if I went all the way up this thing, it would just get me up to the speaker. That's it. Maybe Mr. Chrisman could touch the ceiling. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's no way I could get up to heaven using something that I built. But you know what happened a little after those people tried to build that Tower of Babel? A little after that, one of Jesus' great, 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 I don't really know how many great grandfathers had a dream about a ladder that actually connected heaven to earth. And he saw angels going up and coming down on that ladder. It was a ladder to and from God that actually worked. And in that dream, God was showing Jacob that God still wanted to be connected to his people on earth. Even though people were running away from God, God was going to make a way for him to be with his people again. Like they were before Adam and Eve disobeyed, before heaven and earth had been torn apart, by sin, and we were separated from him. And so when Jesus says that Nathaniel is going to see the angels going up and coming down, using Jesus like a ladder, Jesus is saying that he's the one that Jacob saw in that dream. Jesus is saying that he himself is the one who's connecting heaven and earth together again. He himself is is the one who is bringing God's presence to his people. Uh, uh, It means he's going to be with them. Yeah. So you and I, we can never build something or climb something to get us up to God, but the gospel tells us that we don't have to because Jesus came to reunite us to God. He's the way up because in him, heaven came down. And that's why we call this good news. Do you believe it? Thanks, guys. If you haven't already
1: done so, open your Bibles to that passage that Sam read for us John chapter 1. We're picking up at verse 43, which is really picking up in the middle of the story, in the middle of John's account of Jesus' early ministry. If you'll scan up the page, you'll you'll see that in the previous paragraph, uh, we read about Andrew and Peter beginning to follow Jesus. And then in verse 43, we read, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, Follow me. So this is the very beginning of, of Jesus' ministry, and he is beginning to call his disciples to himself. And we're told that when Philip was called by Jesus, Philip immediately went and got his friend Nathaniel, just as Andrew had gotten, went to get Peter when he was called, uh, so now also we have Philip going to get Nathaniel when he is called. And this is not really our main point this morning, but that's a beautiful picture of how the church reaches out into its community. We reach out and basically say to people, come and see, come and learn more about this Jesus whom I have met. And that's what we see going on here. Philip goes to get Nathanael and he says to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But of course, this is the point at which Nathanael famously says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's generally assumed that, that Nazareth was considered to be something of a, of a backwater community, a, a, a town on the proverbial wrong side of the tracks. But whatever the specific stigma, it's clear that Nathaniel couldn't believe that anyone from Nazareth could be someone important, and certainly not the long-promised Messiah. And so all that Philip can say to him is, Come and see." Come and see this one whom we have found. And this is what leads uh, to Nathanael's encounter with Jesus. Nathanael does come and see. And when he finally meets Jesus, Jesus says to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. It's something of a cryptic statement. What, what is Jesus getting at? What What is he saying? Well, it's, it can be interpreted in a number of ways, but when Jesus says an Israelite indeed, he seems to mean something like here is a typical Israelite. Here is a man who, who embodies all that Israel really is. Here is an Israelite with all of the usual prejudices and presumptions that go along with being an Israelite. Prejudices and presumptions about places like Nazareth. And when he adds, in whom there is no deceit, he, he seems to be saying, and not only is he a typical Israelite, uh, not only does he, does he feel about Nazareth the way that pretty much every Israelite feels, but he feels no need to hide it. He's not pretending to be something he's not. He's, he's not wearing a mask. On the contrary, he is more than willing to put his typical Israelite prejudices out there for all to see. And so when Jesus says this to Nathanael, he he responds in the way we might expect. He's like, how do you know me? I don't think it's as much a question as it is almost an accusation. What gives you the right to, to pretend you know me? What gives you the right to say such a thing about me? And to this, Jesus replies, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And again, it's it's a mysterious statement. It doesn't immediately make sense. And we're not exactly sure what it is that, that Jesus saw when uh, Nathanael was under the fig tree. We're not exactly sure what was going on that, that, that he was able to come to this assessment of Nathanael. But Nathanael knew. Nathanael knew what had happened under the, the fig tree. And, and what's more that Jesus saw whatever it was that that confirmed and uh, saw what was going on under the fig tree, confirmed in Nathanael's mind that here was a true prophet. Here is someone who had divine insight, not only into his life, but into his heart. And so Nathanael blurts out, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So after one brief encounter... Nathaniel goes from saying, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? To you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. When you're reading through the Gospel, if you're anything like me, you, you can't help but think it's a, it's a little much. It's, it's a little too quick. It's, a, it's too much of an overcorrection. It certainly doesn't seem like Nathaniel has seen enough to really convince him that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. Maybe, maybe he's seen enough to keep looking, Maybe he's seen enough to not just simply walk away, to to keep investigating, but has he really seen enough to be convinced? It's a fair question. In fact, it's precisely the question that Jesus himself raises. Look again at verse 50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Really? (laughs) That was enough for you? That's all you needed? Because I saw you under the fig tree, you say that you believe." And so Jesus is questioning Nathanael's uh, about-face just the way that we do when we read through the Gospel of John. But notice, Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't simply say, well, are you sure you've seen enough? He goes on to say, you will see even more. You will see greater things than these. And what are these greater things? Jesus tells him, Look again. Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's another cryptic segment, the third one in just these uh, short verses. And, and again, its, it's, me, it's meaning is, is not immediately obvious to modern readers. But, but as Sam pointed out to the kids, we, we have help with this one. We have help because Jesus is alluding to a story that that was recorded for us much earlier. A story that was recorded for us in in Genesis 28. So, So turn with me to Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, Jacob is running for his life. You may remember Jacob is Isaac's second born son, the, the younger twin of uh, his brother Esau. And in the previous chapter, in chapter 27, Jacob had tricked his father Isaac into giving him the first born son's blessing, effectively stealing that blessing from his older brother. And understandably, Esau was angry, but, but Esau wasn't just angry. He was angry enough to kill. We we read in chapter 27, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to him, The days of of mourning my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. So so Esau knows his father's old. He doesn't want to grieve him in his old age. And so he says, okay, my my father's going to die soon. And when he does, then I'm going to kill my brother. Then I'm going to take Jacob's life for stealing the blessing from me. And it seems that he was saying this uh, here and there. He was, he was comforting himself with these thoughts, and his mom heard it. And when Rebekah, the, the boy's mother, heard Esau talking this way, she goes to Isaac and she convinces him to send Jacob away. Presumably that he can go find a wife among her relatives in Haran, but, but really to save his life, to, to get him away from his brother until his brother's anger had cooled And so we read here in chapter 28, verse 10. Look there again. He says, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. So Jacob is running for his life. He's he's left his his home and he's going back to the land of his forefathers. And it's on this journey, as, as Jacob is running for his life, that he has this dream. We see it there in verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And so when Jacob wakes up from, uh, from this dream, he says immediately, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. God had come to meet Jacob there on his journey as he was running for his life. Now, obviously, there's a, there's a lot going on here that we can't explore this morning, but what I want us to notice is this description of the, of the ladder, this description of the stairway between heaven and earth. What is it that Jacob saw? He saw the angels of God... <coughs> Ascending and descending on this stairway. This, this stairway that connected heaven to earth and, and earth to heaven. This, this stairway uh, to the Lord. This is what convinced Jacob that the Lord was in this place. And it's on this stairway that, we, that he sees the angels of God ascending and descending. Which, of course, echoes what Jesus says to Nathaniel. Jesus says to Nathanael, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, It's commonly understood that when Jesus uses the title Son of Man, he is is referring to himself. He's talking about himself, that's exactly what he is doing here. He's he's talking about himself as the Son of Man, and he is saying that Nathanael will see the angels of God ascending and descending on him. The the illusion is is clear, is it not? The the echo of Jacob's ladder is, is unmistakable. Therefore, Jesus can only be saying that he is the stairway. That is, he is the connection between heaven and earth. It is in him that heaven and earth will be united or reunited. You see... There's a great that there is a great divide between heaven and earth is, is pretty much universally accepted. It's, it's universally accepted because, let's just be honest, it's it's impossible to deny. It's impossible to deny that that we don't live anywhere near heaven. And yet, it is also generally recognized that, that this divide is not right. That this divide is, is not the way that it is supposed to be. People around the world and and throughout the generations, they have this this sense of paradise lost and this this unquenchable desire to to regain it. It's why we see man with all kinds of of, of systems and ploys to to regain paradise, to establish heaven on earth. they, They recognize that something has been lost and needs to be regained. And we understand that sense of of paradise lost and that desire for for paradise regained when we go back to the very beginning of the story. Genesis 1-1, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then in Genesis 2, we are told that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had So here at the very beginning, God creates heaven and earth. He he speaks the cosmos into existence. And on this planet earth that he has created, he he plants a garden and he puts man in that garden. The the so-called Garden of Eden. What we know about this garden is that it was a place where God and man could dwell together. We see this a little later in the story when we're told that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Here in the garden, however you understand that, that language, that, that imagery of God walking in the, in the garden, it's clear that God and man were together in the garden. God and man were in relationship there at the very beginning. They, they lived in communion with one another. They, they dwelt together. But when Adam sinned, when, when Adam took the, the fruit of the forbidden tree, he and his posterity, that's us, all those descending from Adam by ordinary generation, all of mankind was banished from the garden. We were banished from God's presence. And a flaming sword was set at the entrance of the garden to bar man's way back in. Keller writes this, This is a graphic representation of the truth that the penalty for sin was death. The way back into the presence of God was blocked by justice. There was a debt that had to be paid. There was no way back into the presence of God without going under the sword. And it was because of this divinely imposed separation between God and man that later in the story, when when God rescues His chosen people out of Egypt and when He brings them to Mount Sinai... When he brings them into his presence, they do not rejoice, but they tremble. And in his presence, they are terrified. We're told that that God appeared on Mount Sinai in lightning and thunder and fire and and smoke, that his his presence caused a, a violent earthquake, and that his voice was like an intolerably loud trumpet blast. And when the people saw the sight and when they heard the sound, they were terrified. God's presence was was unbearable, and they begged not to have God speak to them anymore lest they die. Again, Keller writes, the way back into into the garden, into life with God, was not yet open. The cherubim's sword was still there. Sinful human beings cannot bear the presence of God. It is as fatal to sinners as the surface of the sun. See, that's the reality that we live with. The presence of God is as fatal to sinners as the surface of the sun. We cannot simply come into God's presence. Without being undone. It's what Isaiah learned in, in his trip into the throne room of God. You remember it in Isaiah chapter 6 we're told that he, he was brought into the very throne room of God. Where were, the angels were singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And, and what does Isaiah say at this great privilege of, of coming into the presence of the glory of God? He says woe is me, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. In the presence of God, he was undone. In the presence of God, he was terrified. For he knew he could not stand in God's presence and live. People today sometimes talk glibly about wanting to see God, or see God's glory, or, or be in His presence. But we need to understand that Scripture makes it clear from the very beginning that God is not safe. He is a consuming fire, and we can no more live in His presence as sinners than we can live on the surface of the sun. And that is the great irony of the human condition in Adam. That is the the great irony of our position in sin. We were created for life with God. We were created to dwell with Him in the garden. And therefore, we can only experience true life. We can only experience life as it is supposed to be in relationship with God. But what we need most and what we even long for at some level is now fatal to us. We were created to live quorum Deo. We were, we were created to live before the face of God. But because of sin, we cannot stand before God's face and live. It is this dilemma that God began to answer with the gift of the tabernacle, which He revealed to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. Remember when we studied through the the book of Leviticus, we we said again and again that the book of Leviticus is really all about answering the question, how can sinful people live in the presence of a holy God? And and the tabernacle is the the, the beginning of God's answer to that question. The the tabernacle and and later the temple, they were a way, limited to be sure, but a way of restoring to his people what had been lost when mankind was banished from the garden. We see this in many of the features of the, of the tabernacle and, and later the, the temple. The entrance of the garden and the entrance of the tabernacle faced east. The, the angels which guarded the way back into the garden were represented in carved images at the entrance to the temple. And all the parts of the temple were, were decorated with images of trees and, and flowers and animals that, that vividly recalled the garden of God. The tabernacle was, was a promise that one day the people would be restored to the garden. And maybe we see this most clearly at all in the inner sanctuary, the, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark was cupped, because here the Holy of Holies was referred to as the throne room of God, the one place on earth that God's name dwelled, the one place where heaven and earth were connected, the one place where God spoke to his people. This is why only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and him only once a year with the blood shed on the day of atonement. Again, Keller writes, the imagery could not be more clear. The only way to have fellowship with God, to have him speak to us, was for atonement for sins to be made just as a sword of justice guarded the way back into the garden, so the high priest had to go under the sword with a blood sacrifice, symbolically atoning for sin, paying the penalty, in order to even go briefly into the presence of God. But as I said, well, the tabernacle and the, the temple held out the promise of restored relationship, The imagery in the temple also made it clear that the way back into God's presence was not yet open. Only the high priest, and only once a year, and only with the blood of the Day of Atonement could he go in. And even then, he had to put incense upon the fire to to create smoke to, to protect him that he'd not die when he entered the presence of God. And so while the tabernacle held out a promise, it also vividly displayed the problem. Sinners can no more live in the presence of God than we can live on the surface of the sun. And that is why, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets looked forward to the establishment of a better, more perfect temple. A temple that would truly reunite man and God without the veil, without the, the separation. That's what the people longed for. That's what their hearts needed. And it is that more perfect temple that Jesus claimed to be when he said to his opponents, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The people listening to him that day didn't really understand what he was talking about. They they thought he was talking about the, uh, the temple there in Jerusalem. They said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But John tells us explicitly that he was talking about his body. You see, in Jesus' resurrection, the temple, the the true temple, the the promised temple, the the temple of which the Old Testament was, was merely a shadow, in Jesus' resurrection, that temple is established, for he is the temple. He is the place where where people could meet God. He is the place where where the infinite divide between heaven and earth, that, that infinite divide caused by sin, He is the place where that divide is finally and forever overcome. In Christ, our communion with God is restored. That is why the the new city of God that comes down, the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven in the the final chapters of Revelation, that's why that city is a perfect cube, just like the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament sanctuaries. The imagery of, of Jerusalem as a perfect cube teaches us that in the age to come, the entire world will be the Holy of Holies. The whole earth will be the garden of Eden. The separation between heaven and earth, between God and man, will be no more. This is why when Jesus died upon the cross, the veil that kept the people out of God's throne room was torn in two from top to bottom. In Jesus, the way back to God had been opened. In Jesus, we were restored. He went under the sword for us and then rose again to bring us home. Think about what that means for us today. In Christ, we have been restored to right relationship with God. In Christ, we have been restored to the relationship with God for which we were created in other words, our inheritance is not merely a place in the coming kingdom of God. We, we can speak about the coming kingdom, but, but sometimes our thinking about the kingdom can be impersonal, as if, as if the kingdom is just simply all about the cosmos restored, things made new. We don't have to deal with thorns and, and thistles anymore. And won't it be great that our crops will grow and that, that our businesses will succeed and, and, and will our bodies will be healthy? And all that is true, all that is the glory of the kingdom, but what we must not not miss is that our inheritance in the kingdom is not simply about the cosmos restored, it is about God himself. In God's kingdom, we are not just restored to creation, we are restored to God. Our communion with him is reunited, and he is our portion. He is our ultimate inheritance. And there is no better inheritance. The promised land without God would be a disastrous word. The kingdom without God would be no inheritance at all. You see, we were created not only by God, but we were created for God. And it is only in communion with God that we can know true and lasting peace. It's only in communion with God that we can find the rest for which our hearts long. It is only in relationship with Him that we can enter into the true and everlasting joy that is promised to God's people. Separated from God, we can only seek life in the, the broken cisterns of this age. You, you know them, you, you know them well. The, the broken cisterns that we, that we turn to again and again and again, hoping to find something of life. The, the, the cisterns of power, of prestige, the, the cisterns of, of pleasure and of, and of possessions. We, we turn to these again and again, seeking life. But it never works. It's what Alan Noble calls the crushing burden of self-belonging. Apart from God, we must create our own self. We must create our own identity. We must create our own meaning. We must create our own values. We must give our life significance. It sounds attractive to the foolish. It's the American dream. To be ourselves, to direct our own lives, to to write our own story. But the truth is, we cannot bear the burden of belonging to ourselves. We, we cannot give our lives meaning. We cannot create our own garden. But on the contrary, when we belong to ourselves, everything that we look to for life ends up being vanity, a mist, a chasing after the wind. The pleasures and the treasures of this world are inherently unstable and unsatisfying. Not because they are bad, but because they are finite. They cannot bear the the eternity that has been placed in our hearts by God. And therefore, when we put all our hope in them, they ultimately leave us cold and empty because they are not what we were created for. But now in Christ, We have been rescued from the false hope of of self-belonging in Christ. We have been restored to fellowship with God. And in fellowship with God, we can now live the lives we were created for. You see, we were created to be image bearers of God. We were created to to reflect his glory to creation and in, in dominion, the dominion not only of, of creativity, but the dominion of of love and of kindness, of justice, and of mercy, of, of being God's hands and feet in this world. It's what we were created for. This this is the life that we were created to live. And again, it doesn't sound like much to the foolish. To those enthralled with the American dream, our our sinful hearts long for the the freedom of doing our own thing. But the truth is that giving ourselves to these things, losing our life to seek His kingdom, losing our lives to reflect His glory, it's what we were created for. And it is in such self-denial that we find true life indeed. And we can only live such a life, we can only reflect God's glory in relationship with him. Just as a mirror can only reflect the image of the person before it when it's standing before their face, so too we as image bearers can only reflect God's glory to the world. We can only live the life we were created for in relationship with him. And that is why the gospel cannot stop with the good news of Jesus' death for our sins. There is, of course, no gospel without Jesus' death. He had to go under the sword that that we might be forgiven. He had to go under the sword that we might be qualified for an inheritance in the kingdom of God. But the gospel doesn't stop there. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we know that if we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, a new life in the presence of God. That is what Jesus has restored us to. Jesus is the stairway to heaven. Jesus is that point at which heaven and earth are brought back together. And in him, we are made heirs not only of the kingdom, but we are restored to relationship with the king, that we might live to the praise of his glory, that we might glorify and enjoy him all our days. And because we have been restored to such a life through Jesus' resurrection, because this is now our inheritance, because God is our portion, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you did not spare your son, but put him forward as the sacrifice for our sins. That in him we might be forgiven. And more than that, Father, that in him we might be raised to new life. Give us the grace we need to believe these promises and to live this life to the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.